Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 225. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 225 you're listening to. My guest today is Joe Finocchio. Joe is a Bay Area recording engineer, works in a variety of studios as a freelancer with a number of bands, and he also happens to be the production manager over at On Point Audiovisual, a production AV company that does some pretty, pretty big gigs. So excited to bring you this interview. We met up at High Wire Coffee, one of my favorite coffee places in the Bay Area. Amongst the traffic and the people walking on the street, we uh, sat down for a cup of coffee and some good conversation. So I look forward to bringing you that. Joe Finocchio coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. All right, pull up your coffee cups. Let's talk a little bit about structure. As audio professionals, a lot of us are in this because we enjoy it. It would be great if you could sit down every day and master something, mix something, go on location and record dialogue for film or whatever it is you're doing in audio. It'd be great to just show up and do the job. But as we all know, there's a lot of different things around the job that are not as fun, but they are necessary. There's billing, client relationship management, There's maintaining data for clients. There's sending clients their finished stuff in a timely manner. Communication. It involves people skills. It involves diplomacy and psychology. And not only that, but there's your outside life, too, that, you know, you've got to manage. So, yeah, it can be a little bit of a challenge. I'll I'll say that. As I talked about in my last episode, we talked about habits. I mentioned the book Atomic Habits. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for that in case you want to check that out. Good habits, structure, being organized, you know, and I know that these are all no-brainers for a lot of you, but some of us are late bloomers when it comes to creating good habits in our lives, and we're still indulging in bad habits, sleeping in too late, staying up too late. Drinking too much, smoking too much, eating too much, not exercising. One little habit can lead to the next habit, whether it be good or bad. I'm revisiting the habit thing again to some degree, but at the same time also just saying it's possible to do all this audio work and keep your clients happy and keep yourself happy by implementing these different systems of organization. I think it behooves all of us to not only stay on top of the latest audio gear, but also stay on top of other things that complement our audio world, our business world, like calendaring and CRM systems, and if, if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Also, spending a little time figuring out ways to improve your health and, and your diet. and it, It's all connected, and sometimes I wish it wasn't, but it is. So keep in mind some of these things and don't get too overwhelmed try to keep it together and stay focused yeah keep making audio keep recording it if you've got suggestions or systems you use please feel free to email me matt at workingclassaudio.com i would love to hear your ideas of how you keep it together Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Joe Finocchio here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Back at Highwire Coffee, or I'm back at Highwire Coffee. Americano in hand, coffee in hand for Joe. We just had a race for our table because otherwise we'd be standing and the traffic noise was like 10 times as bad. So we were just uh, talking about some mutual friends who've been on the show, former WCA guest John Schimpf, Sebastian Richard, Scott Evans. Scott was an early one. Scott was... Scott was one of the more popular ones for the longest time, too. Yeah, he, he had a pretty high high listen count, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Scott's a phenomenal engineer. I really love the, the records that Scott makes, and I love just listening to his rants about making records, too. They're really great. Yeah. I'm constantly borrowing microphones from him. <laughs> you know, to, to, to maybe, like, feel like it's even. Like, I, I try to loan him my, some of my stuff, and then it ends up becoming Joe's storage <laughs> at Scott's place. If I heard you correctly, you went to school with John Schimpf, is that right? No, I didn't go to school with John Shemp, uh, a, a really good buddy of mine did, okay. and for my my high school senior project, I did uh, a recording project. I recorded the band I was playing in. The way that we did that was my buddy was going to school with John, and we met at the Stand State in Turlock. That they had a little recording studio there with like a really small Pro Tools rig, and we went and we uh, recorded my band, and that's how me and John became friends. Oh, okay. Yeah. So where, where did you grow up then? I uh, I grew up in Manteca, California. It's oh, yeah. just about an hour east of, uh, hour and 20 minutes east of San Francisco. I was living there since like 1994. And then before that, I was in, uh, I was born in a town called Dinuba, California, which is like uh, south of Fresno. Hmm. Not much going on. Not much going out in Manteca. And I, you know, it was time to get out. Were you exposed to the world of any type of recording then? Or was that even on your radar? Um, you know, I played in bands. I think I had a very similar story. You know, I got a Tascam 4-track and started started recording the bands I was playing in, recording songs, recording delay performances. With You remember the, the Line 6 delays that came out, the, the green the delay modulators? I would, I would plug in, like, a, a high-impedance microphone and make, like, little drum beats by tapping on it, loop that, and then, you know, play, and then record that in the tape recorder. And uh, I, I really enjoyed doing that. And then when I was in high school, we had uh, a music composition and theory class. 
if you had enough fine arts credits at my high school, you didn't have to take foreign languages. And for whatever reason, I just wasn't interested in taking foreign languages. And now I felt like I shot myself in the foot a little bit. Like when you travel, you know, you're just like, I would love to speak Spanish or speak French, you know, but uh, I was more interested in writing music and recording. And we had set up a little recording studio at the school and it was, a, it was like a Sony mini disc recorder. And it was like an eight channel mini disc recorder. And I just like lived in that room. I would like spend hours and hours and hours in there, essentially just making noise and making a mess. And it was it was a lot of fun, and I and I always really really loved it. And then when I figured out it could actually be a career, I decided that it's kind of something that I think I would really enjoy doing. Did you take a path of music and then recording? You know, I was working as a cook at a restaurant at the, at the golf course in Manteca. You know, I got out of high school and I was. I tried the junior college thing for a little bit. It just felt like high school again. I was just not into it. And then I think I caught a brochure or a buddy had told me about Expressions, College for the Digital Arts. And I was like, that's it. You know, I can go, I can learn how to become a recording engineer. I could, you know, be making big boy records in no time. And, you know, I'm going to get fast tracked. And, you know, and I went to recording school. I kind of bought into the, go to this vocational college and, and learn the skill and art and that I would go out and just be, become a recording engineer. I didn't really understand that there was, uh, they had offered programs at like, you know, like the state college has a, a pretty decent recording program. And, you know, I just didn't, I thought this is the only place that I could get it that was close by. And, and then I didn't have to go to Full Sail in, in, um, in Florida. But yeah, I just, I, I kind of took the recording school route. You know, I did everything there. I did the G GEs and I did everything and amassed a huge amount of debt and, you know, came out and just kind of uh, got right into the trenches. Oh, yeah. you should have just opened a studio and gone into debt. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, I can show you how to do that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that uh, I thought about it and I was just like, there's just no way. I, you know, I've watched people just like hemorrhage money, like building and starting studios and stuff. And it's cool and it was kudos to them, but I was just like, can I just use your space? You know, can I just come in and work? Because I just, I had no desire to be a studio owner. I, I just got out and I, I didn't even take the route of, I, I I feel like this entire podcast is gonna be like, what not to do for like the new, <laughs> the people coming into this industry. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, cause I didn't, I was kind of arrogant and I didn't, I, di I didn't like take the, the like traditional route. I didn't intern anywhere. I didn't make coffee for anybody. I didn't run and get food for anybody. I kind of just got out and I got freaked out about like where the economy was. I was living in San Francisco and I was like, I need to make money. And if I'm gonna do this, I need to just hustle and make records. And so I just started going to every band that I liked. I was like, hey, you pay for the studio time. Hopefully kick me a couple bucks, maybe pay for some food and let's go make a record. You know, in hindsight, like I, I probably could have figured out interning and figured out a way to live, you know, but like I did have a hell of a like, good time doing that, you know, when I first got out. It's always interesting looking back at the path you take and the mistakes you made. Right. And in spite of those mistakes, many people are like, but you know what, I wouldn't trade that for the world. Right. Because I learned so much from those mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could sit here now and tell me how you would completely revamp that method. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, but yeah, again, though, in hindsight, like I had a great time and I learned more in the first two years out of college than I'd ever learned at college. You know, I, like, I learned just about how to properly run a session, how to be a psychologist with your band, you know, and how to, how to get good performances from people, how to make people feel comfortable. Um, just all these things that they don't really teach. I mean, you know, they say, hey, dim the lights a little bit and, you know, this and that. I learned so much. I, I learned so much about just like running my own business and like how how it's okay to charge money and it is your time and and how to not just like destroy a session. <laughs> what are some of the um, studios you were working out of in those days? I really cut my teeth at at different fur. One of my best friends, uh, he's, he's since passed away, but. Um, Pat Elliott was kind of a house engineer there right after Patrick Brown had taken taken over the building. Okay. And uh, I love Patrick Brown, great guy. So Pat was working there and he kind of had the in. And at the time I kind of had this like romantic idea of like being a producer and an engineer. And so I was like grabbing bands. And I kind of had a knack for, for arranging songs. And so I was grabbing bands and bringing them over there. Me and Pat were kind of working as a partnership, like, a, like a, a production team. And so I did a lot of work there, a lot of late hours, a lot of going into the sauna and trying to sweat out 
you know, everything. There's a sauna there? There's a sauna there, yeah. There's also a shower with two heads on it, and it was pretty amazing. Wow. Yeah, because we would we'd be working till you know, 3, 4 in the morning. Can you just book the sauna or the shower? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, I wish you could because I kind of miss it, you know? <laughs> and then I did a lot of work at the hangar in Sacramento. Oh, okay. Yeah, so John Bacigalupi has been paramount in me just being being able to still be an engineer and still work. I did a lot of work at the hangar, and then when he moved the hangar to the dock, I did a lot of work at the dock, which is another building that they... He started uh, another studio when the hangar lost their lease in the produce building in uh, Midtown Sacramento, and it was really cool. And then I still do a, f- a fair amount of work at Stinson, that panoramic house, which is really, really cool. you got to get out there. Yeah. It's really I, great. I, I, I've been talking about doing that, and... It's one of those things on the list. So how was John pivotal in, in what you were doing just by being the studio owner and having a great place? He, he was so trusty. You know, he just kind of, I don't know if he's just got, got a great read on people or he just is like a gambler, but he just gave me the keys, gave me the alarm code and said, hey, you're going to be here for a few days. Here's some bedding. Knock yourself out. Call me if you need anything, you right. know, and just let me go in the studio where most studios are like, no, you need to hire the house guy. They need to make sure that you're okay. You know, after a few sessions, you can be, you know, you can come in here by yourself. And the hangar was affordable, so bands loved that. You know, it was cheap, and I can still charge on top of it to at least cover my costs and make, you know, make a, a decent amount of money while I was there. And John just like literally just was just like, hey man, here's where the breaker box is. Here's the here's the patch bay diagram. Here's the keys. There's my cell phone t- number taped to the console. Call me if you need anything, but uh, knock yourself out, you know? And that was huge. That was huge for me. I mean, like, people, I just didn't, you know, you hear stories of people doing that, but I didn't think it existed, you know? Was it the trust factor that you were floored by, or what about that, what about that relationship made you feel good? It, you know, a lot of it was the trust factor. That was really cool. He would come in and, like, give you great commentary on your session. Like, he'd be like, oh, that's really interesting. That's really cool that you're doing that. This, you know, people do this this way. And he would always give you a lot of, like, great advice that was very, like, very nonchalant and very just kind of whatever. And then we just kind of became friends after I kept booking and booking the studio a bunch. And then eventually doing sessions with him and uh, just kind of learning the ropes you know, because I'd never been an intern, so I never had that like uh, that relationship that you would have like with the with the engineer that's been doing it forever and had like stories and the tri- you know being trapped in the trenches making records. So like when I got to actually work on records with him, all of a sudden getting all that advice that I think I would have gotten as an intern with the, with an engineer that was more experienced. But yeah, I just kind of went out there and started doing it and like making a mess. <laughs> you know, what are the pros of? going that route the we'll call it the the lone wolf route because like you said a lot of people do do the you know make the coffee clean the bathroom intern come up through the system method that is one method it's yeah. not the only method yeah, yeah. and uh, I like you did we'll call the lone wolf thing so what do you think the pros are of that and what are the cons I think I had to learn to think really fast on my feet because, I mean, ultimately, the, the, the client's still paying money for the studio. And if I couldn't figure something out, I needed to figure it out really quickly. And if I couldn't figure it out, something I need to be able to move on. And, you know, like if I was just having an issue with, you know, how the patch bay was working, if something wasn't labeled properly or, or some, something had moved from a, a prior session and I just, like, wanted to use this or a client requested to use some gear, I just had to figure things out really, really quickly in order to keep the session moving and not to, not to feel like I was incompetent, you know, because um, I had already gained the band's trust by selling myself to them, you know, but I needed to be able to, to produce as well and, 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 and make a product for them. So I think the pros are one, you learn to you learn to think on your feet really, really quickly. You learn things really in depth by trial and error. And I think trial and error is a really good way to learn things. Because if you're told how to do the right thing all the time, like you don't I don't feel like you really figure it out. And I think there's so many cons, you know, like, you know, like I would have loved to just be some great engineer's assistant for, you know, tons and tons of records and really just like absorb all their knowledge. And I really didn't. And I and I think it, you know, a lot of that had just had to do with like living in the Bay Area and being like, I need to make money now and I need to be able to survive. I've got these student loan payments that are going to start happening. I've got fairly high rent comparatively to what I, you know, grew up with in the Central Valley where it costs nothing to live, you know, and I was just kind of like actually just terrified, you know, like. How am I going to afford this? You know, how am I going to be able to do this? Did you ever take a side job, do anything like Lyft, Uber, any of that? No. So I, um, I do have a side job now, and I would actually argue that it's 
engineering is more of almost a side job now. I work as a production manager for a corporate AV company. Yeah. And so we do like large corporate events, large general sessions, product launches, and we basically supply the, the production infrastructure for these large events. And I started doing that in college because it was a one, it was a great way to make money and the schedule was fairly flexible. Like I could I could just tell whatever company I was working for, hey, I'm not gonna be available for two weeks. I'm gonna go make a record. And they'd be like, okay, great. See you, see you when you come back. And the money was good. I know a lot of studio guys that are just like, don't make records anymore. Then they just, they're just the A1 for a production company. You know, they, they can make great day rates. What's a day rate in that kind of job? You know, it really depends on your skill level and the, the type of systems that you're comfortable operating. But if you can be like a system tech on a really big line array system, you know, if you could handle 48 boxes of L acoustics and, and, and shoot a room and help hang it with the riggers and stuff, some of those guys, you know, they'll make 650 to 750 a day. It's just good money, you know? Rigging. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Climb, yeah. I mean, a lot of the guys, you know, that are the system techs, they're, they're more pointing fingers at the guys that are climbing in the arenas and stuff like that. Uh. It's a skill set that's paid for, you know, really well. I, you know, it's um, like some of those guys that do like the day-to-day -day corporate gig down at, at like Google as like the corporate A ones. You know, those guys are making anywhere from four fifty to six fifty a day, which is good money. You know, and it's I, I can totally understand why people don't want to make records anymore when they can go. You know, if their their live sound chops, like if they really have them up, they can go make really good money working for Google or working for Facebook or and I, I get it like great you can you can buy a BMW now and you know and you know actually pay your rent on time actually pay your rent on time and not have to chase bands for money or and that's cool and I, and I totally admire that but I, I just love making records and I don't think I could just ever do that completely full-time you know I it's cool it's rewarding but like there's nothing cooler than making something cool that you're really proud of how did you get into the production thing completely by chance I was walking, I'd, so we, uh, a band I was playing in um, used to have a space at Rocker Guitars, the, the old rock rehearsal space. And literally it was, a, it was a beautiful day like this and I was walking down the alleyway, which is Grace Alley, and there was a roll-up door open and I saw out of the corner of my eye, like my peripheral vision, a bunch of XLR cable hanging up, or I thought was XLR. And there was a gentleman out and he was washing uh, a box truck. And I said, hey, do you guys ever need any help? And he's like, actually we do. And then he gave me his card and it turned out to be a lighting company that, that did some audio and video. And at the time I was like, I need some money. <laughs> you know, like but now, now, yeah. Like I, I'm tired of eating peanut butter and top ramen. And like, actually, I don't know if I'm ever going to get tired of eating peanut butter and top ramen, but <laughs> You know, I needed a job, and, and from that, it just kind of blossomed into, gosh, almost 14 years of doing it. But it also allows me time to go make records. I uh, was able to build a mix room in my house, which is really great. I, I've got a fairly healthy work-life balance now, which is really cool. All right, so let's, let's go back a bit. So prior to the production thing, and when you're running around busting your ass trying to make records, right? take me through that, that time period between those two events, and what... What are some of the things that took place? What are some of the lessons you learned and how to survive and, and how to hustle gigs? Yeah, you never want to do a session at Hungover. That was a huge thing, because like, you'd get these bands and they want to go out drinking with you because you're, you're their new bud now. You go out and those guys can party, you know, especially the guys that are coming off the road. You know, They can drink super hard. And I think that was a real thing that people don't talk about so much is like, I just learned to not go out with the band anymore. You know, like there's nothing worse than doing a, an entire day of overdubs after you went out drinking with the band all night. Not to say that this is a great skill that anybody should like think about. But as far as like a lot of the things that I learned was, I learned that just having some some sort of simple contract too, a lot of the ways guarantee that you that you can get paid. I still do projects on spec, um, which I think a lot of people just don't do anymore. I've kind of figured out ways and, and to make money in perpetuity. I think that people still haven't quite caught onto the licensing game yet. And I think that's like something that people really need to, especially engineers that like want to work with these great bands that have no money or these, these great projects that don't really have any money. Like it also takes a lot of hustling on your end. Like I just did this, this mix project where I pretty much did it on spec, but like I also was the guy emailing labels like, hey, I just did this project. I think it's really great. And you, you almost play manager in a sense. Mm -hmm. You have a, a decent solid contract and a good relationship with the artist. Like a lot of times you could 
you can negotiate a deal with a broker that will start shopping the music to get licensed and all of a sudden you're getting checks quarterly, you know, because you have a portion of, um, you know, a portion of the publishing or, you know, your contract stipulates that you get paid X amount until your, until your fees have been paid off. You know, I think that stuff is really powerful. And again, I'm still learning about the licensing stuff. I, I want to get, I want to learn more about it, but there's people that are really hip to it and it's actually been a great way to make income. The band I play in, we had with a friend of ours, this guy, Chris, do you know Chris Klein? He used to he used to teach at Expression. He's a great engineer, a drummer. Uh, he runs a like a little boutique. Like he's like a, like a licensing broker, licensing and publishing. Hmm. And uh, name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's a really he's a great guy, great engineer. He'd be really cool to have on the show because I think people this is still like a really new world for me. I don't even understand it. Yeah, when you talk about it, it's I get overwhelmed because I start to get into the the details. Like you say, contract, and I go back to my days of working with some bands where I thought, well, I got to have a contract. Right. And so I went to a, you know, a lawyer and spent, you know, a bunch of money and got con, got a contract. And then the band, you know, the band breaks up like, you know, a month after right, the record right. comes out or the band like sits on the records. So I always get gun shy about that and just stick to the method of just give me the money and I'll, I'll help you make your record. In most cases, it, it is like that. It's like, hey, this is what my day rate is. Or this is what the, you know, if you want to do a project rate, this is what the project rate is. And this is what it's going to cost for a mix per song or whatever. Sometimes, you know, when a project's that good and you feel like it's really compelling, um, you know, you'll, you're willing to do stuff on spec, I think, for me. And the contract thing is I'm also like... You know, it's I've I've gotten some boilerplate contracts and, and looked at them and kind of understand some of the uh, some of the lingo that's used. But I think a lot of it's just saying that like, hey, this is what I'm doing, this is what I want to be paid for, and this is how long I should be paid for for what I did. A lot of it isn't even written by a lawyer. It's like it's like an email that I wrote up that everybody agrees to. And I guess you know I don't know if it would formally hold up in court or anything, but you just never know. Something might take off. You know, like especially in the licensing world. Like let's say you know a track that you worked on gets licensed for a really popular Netflix show as the theme song. You want to make some money on that, and you should be. You uh, have yeah, your contract, but um, the one thing I'm just saying is that like, it's a, it's it's another source of income. Like, you know, I think studios a lot of times will try to figure out different things to do to make money, not mm -hmm. just recording bands and whatever. They'll do podcasting, they'll do voiceover work and stuff, but I think as producer, engineers, and mixers and stuff, there's always more income to be made than just your day rate. How do you get that across to a band and say, this is another thing, I'm getting caught up in the details. It's like, well, yeah. well how do you actually talk to the band and say, hey, so you don't have a lot of money and I want to make some money on the back end of this. I guess it's like a pitch is just like, look, I mean, there's no way that I'm ever, you know, it would have to be a real stroke of luck that I'm ever going to make back what I want to charge to make this record on your record sales. But if somebody uses one of these tracks in an internal online video for a company, that could be a significant portion of what, a significant portion of money. <laughs> the band I play in right now has a, a Monster Energy Drinks has been licensing our instrumentals for their extreme sports videos and for like, because we're kind of like a heavier rock and roll kind of punk band for their like motocross videos. And then every quarter or so I get a, I get a, a PayPal, you know, and invoice of like, hey, this money's coming towards you, which is kind of cool. You have a little bit of different perspective as, as a, a member of a band mm -hmm. looking at it from the license perspective. I always, I feel like guilty getting into uh, people's income streams, you know? Yeah. But like you say, if they can't afford to pay you or they can't afford to, you know, get involved on a deep level financially to, you know, like an old school record. Yeah. Then, yeah, I, I could see how it could be good. Tell me about the continued path there. Take me to the time around when you were with Patrick at Different Fur. What were you doing to survive then? You know, I uh, sleep on couches. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sleep on couches. I would stay the night at the studio a lot. I had an apartment here in the city that I shared with a buddy. He had a pretty well-paying kind of tech job, like in analytics or something, and, and we played in bands together. And so he was kind of a bleeding heart. Like, he kind of let me survive, and I'm so grateful to him. He actually plays in Scott's band, John Howell. I don't know if you've ever met John. And John really let me survive, and, and he was actually super supportive, you know, and he was just like, you're out here doing this, and you're really trying to make it work. But yeah, at Different Fur, I was just trying to hustle, get bands to get in there. And occasionally a project would come through that they thought I would be good to work on it because I was like 
kind of the more rock and roll guy that was there, me and my buddy Pat. So we'd do stuff like that. And occasionally, like, I would, because I would try to weasel, like, free or, like, super low-cost studio time, I would have to, you know, one day when their intern couldn't make it, I would run the desk and run food. But I just, I never had, the like, the normal intern gig. Yeah, Patrick Brown was, uh, was really awesome. He was another one of those guys that just kind of, like, was really supportive and kind of got the whole grind of you know just right coming out of school and like trying to make it happen and trying to do these things and really hustling to get bands in working for free because i i mean i made a little bit of money but i feel like the first two years i essentially worked for free which i think a lot of us do um, you make a little bit of money here and there and you take gigs you take gigs outside of uh you go do live sound gigs yep I think a bunch of my friends, we all did live sound at like the Edinburgh Castle or like the Hemlock or, you know, just, just to make a couple bucks and get a couple free beers. But yeah, it was just hustling. Hustling period. Did you, how many times have we said hustle in this show? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Uh, in that time period, how many times did you consider stepping away and just bailing on this whole thing? All the time. All the time. I, uh, I don't know. You love doing something so much that you kind of stop caring about things that you should care about, you know, but like a lot of times I, I did, I was like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay rent. I mean, let alone have health insurance. Like, what if I got sick? You know, like, how would I, how would I pay for it? Now I've, with doing side gigs and engineering and kind of doing all the things that I do, I, I'm actually fairly comfortable now, you know, but there was a there was a good five-year period where it was like, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel to, to find money to eat and money to pay rent and pay bills, you know, I'd have, I ran out credit card debt and, you know, <laughs> just like... I mean, oh, like I've never done that. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, it was hard. I think it was just hard. It, the, the fact that it was hard just made me want to stop doing it. But then I'd go in and do something that I really thought was really cool. And, and I think I had a naive idea that everything that you did in the studio was kind of permanent and that would outlive you, you know? But then you realize that, like, when MySpace had that crash recently, they lost, like, 12 years of music and stuff. And probably some records that I worked on are gone now, you know? I just loved it so much that I just, like, had to make it work. I had to make it work. And, um... And I, I guess I had to pay for mistakes, you know, like I think I, I might have been better off if I just kind of stayed in one place, but I might have not. I don't know. You know, like I think studios at the time wanted you like if you were going to be like the house guy to just to stay there. And I always thought that like different projects suited were suited to different studios. Different Fur is a great studio. It's super cool. I love working there. But also the hangar was more suited for a lot of the like kind of grimy rock and roll projects that I was working on because it's a big, loud, noisy room and there's a bunch of cool stuff. You know, it's really cool. Sometimes you do have to just jump into the deep end yeah. and figure it out. Yeah. And yeah. eventually you'll swim to the side and catch your breath and figure out how to get out of the pool and get back in yeah. on your terms. Yeah. I don't see it as all bad. I no, know, But no. it's, it's, it, it is hard when you're in the middle of it because back to the pool analogy, you do feel like you're like, well, I can't get out. I can't stop treading water because I'll drown. Yeah. And, but I don't know how to get out. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think that I've, I've always been a really competitive person mm -hmm. too. And I think that it's a very competitive industry. Yeah. Even though, you know, everybody's friends and everybody's like, you know, it's pretty incestual, and especially the Bay Area, like everybody kind of knows each other and it's super cool. But like, it was so hard not to compare myself to something that somebody else did that was great. You know, like, I'm just like, man, like, if I could just make something like that or get a band as good as that, you know, then I would be, then I would make it and it would be great. And I'd be working all the time or, you know, this and that. But like nowadays, I'm just like, I'm really comfortable with what I do and I really enjoy what I do and I like the records that I work on. And I think ultimately not staying in the same, uh, same place or being an intern, I, I really wanted to work on the projects that I really loved and I thought were really great because I always felt like my work was that much better. 
like I, w- I didn't really have interest in recording the vanity project you know like the the dentist who had a rock band that you know he was a rock and roller at heart but you know he does root canals for his living you know i didn't really have that interest in recording those notes i did you know and i was just like i hate this because i hate these songs and i hate you know like and that's that's really hard to just be an engineer and be i'm gonna do my job like kind of like the steve albini i i'm gonna fix this car or you know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna cut down this tree perfectly or i'm gonna do this thing because I this is what I do this is my job and for me it was really hard to to do that for something I just wasn't invested in you know and I think that's super hard and I, and I really applaud the guys that can show up every day do it put the same face on do a, a damn good job every time you know regardless of how they feel about the project and for me that was really tough especially when I was younger yeah Albini seems to take on an objective a far more objective point of view than those who want to be producer, want to right. create the next whatever it is. Right. And and maybe that's just a, a matter of identifying what your real mindset is right. and setting your expectations accordingly. You know, <laughs> you know what what is it that we want to do? And right. that's that's kind of hard sometimes. So I think sometimes we get caught up in the identity part of it. Right. It's, it's not right. only it's not only a passion, but it's also it's like, well this is who I am. Right, right. It's always tough to have your name on something that you're not proud of. It know? is. You know what I mean? And or you know, even when I look back at like the early discography of like the stuff I've done, I was like, man, like I can hear that those overheads are out of phase. <laughs> you know, like, you know, and it's just, I was learning and I was trying and you know, and that's cool, but like I really I didn't really I didn't want to really, really want to have records that I wasn't proud of, you know, yeah. and most everything that I do now I'm really proud of and I'm really excited about. And and I think that's why I keep doing it because I really love doing those those types of records. And I always, you know, kind of wanted to pick the project somewhere to work on. And uh, that also I have to have another gig because of that, you know. So you did your you did the struggling period and then uh, that's when you discovered this this company. This, this. Yeah, yeah, I, and I discovered a lot of my friends because I, I think at that time it was a really interesting time. Studios were just starting to close down. Some studios were opening up. I think Trilogy had just opened up, um, but like it was a really weird flux of things that were kind of happening in the Bay Area. And so I had friends that were studio engineers that were now becoming live engineers because they were making more money. And I just needed something to supplement my income, you know, because I was making I was making a little bit of money doing recordings, but not quite enough. Not enough to pay rent or to eat or you know. To, to pay for just living in the Bay Area, the yeah. Bay Area tax, you know, the Bay Area tax, yeah. And so um, I needed a side gig, and if it, if it meant you know putting some lapel mics on a bride and groom and running a PA for a decent hourly wage, I was going to do it, you know, just so just so I could have money to go do go go get back in the studio. I've been always constantly perplexed at how once you step out of record making, yeah, and do other gigs where corporate for weddings or whatever it is. Yeah. The more simple, the better it paid. Oh, right, yeah. You know, like a corporate podcast or uh, like you say, a wedding gig or something, uh, audio cleanup. Things that would take you probably a day to do, maybe a couple days, but in that time period, you'd make as much money right. as you would on a record in at least the tracking phase of a record. Right. And, and you know, to the outside world of like what we do, a lot of it's just magic. You know, we're like the, a wizard and that's cut, that's great because it allows us to make good money when, you know, when we do things outside of the studio. But you know, don't, don't get me wrong. There's guys out there that are really, really, really talented guys. Um, like a kid brother of mine is uh, a systems tech for a huge tour right now. And he's got like, I don't know, I think it was like 96 boxes of line array for, and he's doing arena tours. And he's, you know, he's 27 years old and he's making great money, but it's, he's talented. It's a lot of skill and a lot of physics and stuff. And stuff that we take for granted in the studio, like once we have a room dialed, you know, we have HOTUS come down, tune it, and then we're just like, okay, we're done. You know, we'll just keep going. We'll just keep adding outboard in here, <laughs> you know. Uh, I'll just uh, keep buying stuff. And- but he does that every day, you know, every time they unload the semis and they put up this giant system. And he makes it sound comparable every time, you know, which is crazy. And we, I think we also have to emphasize the fact that you can't say that making records is the only part of this. No. It's, you know, what you're talking about doing and what you're doing now and what others do day after day, that is also very working class audio. It's just getting in and making audio happen for entertainment, you know, purposes. Yeah. It's legit. Yeah, it's it's... 
it's interesting, man. And it's, you know, whoever thought like, you know, I would make money miking up CEOs for a, an all employee meeting or something, you know, and I do, you know, and it's great. But the one thing I'm just thankful for is that it has allowed me with a like kind of an open schedule to still make records and still get back in the studio and, and still do stuff. And it's, I don't have to do just one thing, you know, which is great. So your current gig, is it a contract gig? No, I'm a production manager for a uh, for a corporate AV production company okay. that a buddy of mine started. I because I've been working in production, I have a, a, a pretty wide skill set. Not just in audio; it's uh, video, lighting, rigging, power, and I kind of just picked all that up as I was working. And so I became the production manager for this company, and he's super cool about like letting me take time off to to go make a record, or you know they're pretty lenient with with days off and stuff. But uh, I just I got the gig because I had been doing it for so long, you know. So what's your day to day like? My day to day, I mean, with regards to today, but uh, like my day to day is like I usually show up to the office around 10 a.m. I work till about six. I drive back home to the city, and then usually work in my mix room till. 11, maybe midnight, and then I go to bed. And what's, what does that day encompass? Uh, you know, a lot of the day-to-day at the production company is, like, logistics. Uh, sometimes we're packing for a show. We don't, like, we're pretty small mom-and-pop kind of company. You know, sometimes we're packing a truck for a show, we're pulling a show, we're specking a show, we're doing a design for a show, and we're make, making a floor plan and, like, vector works. But it's pretty much the day-to-day kind of... Uh, turning of like a machine of a production company it's, it's we kind of wear a lot of hats you know sometimes i'm cleaning the bathrooms and sometimes i'm you know in a sales call with a, a ceo of a fortune 500 company or something you know what i mean so it's um it's pretty crazy and then i go home and then work on the stuff i love you know? about a year and a half ago i signed up for sampley.app And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so any mentors along the way? Patrick Brown, Sebastian Richard, John Schimpf, John Batchgalupi was huge. Eric Broyhill from Monster Lab Audio. Oh yeah, yeah. He was the guy that had the mastering room up there. In the same building. As yeah. John. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he used to have those crazy earthwork speakers. Yeah, yeah. He's actually in Stockholm, Sweden now, and still mastering, does a great job. He's a great uh, mastering engineer. My my late best friend Pat Elliott was huge. Great engineer, great drummer, really kind of showed me the ropes of a lot of things. He, he, we met in college, but he went to CRI, I think was like the, the school before Expressions in San Francisco, California oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Academy or something. Yeah, yeah. But he was like one of the house guys at, at Different Fur when Patrick had taken over and we were fast friends at college and he was really great. What do you look for in a mentor? What do you, what are the traits that you identify? Honestly, if, if they can deal with uh, how neurotic I am <laughs> and uh, I really, I, you know, I really like the work that people if I really love the work that they do I want to be I want to know what's going on you know you want to be in the room with that person I want to be in the room with that person I want to talk to that guy I want to have beers with them you know figure it out uh, you know John Batchgloopy not only the publisher of Tape Op makes great sounding records really cool records super cool stuff also like a really good producer and arranger and a very good musician too you know Patrick Brown has been doing a lot of cool stuff he started a record label too uh, Texby Records and they're doing a lot of cool stuff Scott Evans just makes awesome sounding fucking records and he's cool. He'll, you know, he's like, he's got that kind of East Coast call you on your bullshit type mentality, which I kind of like, you know, 
and he's not afraid to burn you, you know, which I, which I really enjoy, you know? Like, you'll be like, nah, you're full of shit, you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm full of shit, yeah, you're right. And he's super cool. Sebastian gave me a place to work. I'm forever grateful for that. Sebastian gave me a place to work. It was affordable, and he did a nice job building building this little basement room out in, in the South of Market area. Which I never saw, but I only heard about. It was cool. It was really nice for what it was. It was affordable. And then he put, uh, he had acquired that Neve, and then it was like, it was just awesome. And he was in the market to buy a console. It was really kind of funny, because I was like, well, hey man, like, you know, I, I can't remember what he spent on the knee, but like for the what he was gonna spend, I was like, dude, we can get like an API, you know, a, you know, 1608 and still have money left over, you know, and I know you're looking at this like an investment or whatever. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? Musicians know what that is. And I was just like, do they though? You know, because I know I know what it is and I know what some of my clients know what it is because I've raved about it. But sure enough, every musician I would, you know, I would, you know, pitching to him like, hey, come record. I've got a Neve. They're like, you got a Neve. Right. Because they, they felt like it was like the, the medicine to every rock and roll record. Oh, yeah. You know, and they're great sounding consoles and super cool. But like they are the one console that, that every musician knows. Nobody knows API. Nobody knows SSL or Spectrasonics or Quad 8 or, you know, like any of the cool consoles, the 70s American consoles that I love, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. that's. I never thought about it that way. No, one he was, console musicians know. Yeah, and he was like, they know it. And, then, and sure enough, they do. They walk in and they're like, wow, that thing's really cool. You know, and I'm like, is it though? <laughs> no, I, I, love, I love that console. It's a great sounding console. It's a 5315 and it's, uh, it's 36 channels. So these days where you work out of when you're tracking, you're working out of Santo with former WCA guest Josh Roberts. Yeah. yeah that's his place. And that's where Sebastian Richard has his Neve. Thank you so much, actually, because I think you introduced Josh to Sebastian. It took two tries to get that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Santo is really cool, and it, it's quirky, it's neat, it's fun. It feels like if you spilt a beer, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And I, I really love that spot, but I really like it. And thank you so much for that introduction, because I'm way happier now. And I think when Sebastian wanted to move the Neve over there, I think he told Josh that you were part of the deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like you had, to, you had to have me. And that, and Sebastian, like again, like he's, you know, he. Uh, <laughs> that, that kind of big brother, like, take care of Joe, like, figure it out. You know, he, Joe wants a place to work. And I think that Sebastian has always uh, liked the stuff that I worked on and, you know, kind of admired the fact that I was kind of scrappy and didn't take the traditional route and was always just kind of uh, scraping things together to make it work, you know, and I think he likes that. Well, I've always paid my rent on time. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you now, just kind of as a parting thought, because we're about out of time. You've heard me ask other guests this, I know. Yeah. You're Now that you, you have a steady gig, you're making some money, Yeah. what is now your approach to money? Do you, are you a saver? Do you spend every dollar you get? I'm a little bit of both. I, uh, I look at, I know this is probably poison for, <laughs> for some people to hear, but like I look at certain equipment purchases as investments. Um, they, they show up as investments and losses on in my taxes. Um, but some, some gear appreciates in value, you know, and uh, I look at that. But I also have, have started saving now. I've thought about investing in, like, real estate out of California because California is just too hard to purchase yeah. anything. But uh, I've really now, since I've started making money, started to save and kind of take care of myself financially for later when I can't do this anymore. I can't hear as well or, you know, um, or, you know, I can't remember where I am, you know, <laughs> so, you know, when I'm, when I have Alzheimer's and I'm, you know, trying to remember where the, you know, where the LA2A is in the patch bay and, right. you know, I hope I'm not working then. Well, that's good. So you're, you're setting yourself up for the future for old age and. Yeah. Oh, well, trying to at least. And, um, I think that, it's, it's super important. I think a lot of people in our industry don't do it. You know, they don't think about that. They think about the now. And, and I get that because it's hard. It's hard out there, especially in the Bay Area. It's hard to just make rent and eat right. Yeah, and, New York or London. Oh, or yeah. Some of these incredibly expensive places. I would definitely agree with you there. I would say that a lot of people in our industry think of the now, the short term. Yeah. And, they, and spending money or putting money in... Uh, in some kind of investment vehicle for the future, as opposed to spending that money on a microphone is like a ludicrous idea to them. So yeah. they end up buying the microphone. And, and it's also, you know, like the market's still pretty good for like uh, our world, you know, like 
gear holds its value fairly well. You know, good gear, good gear. Yeah, holds, yeah. yeah. You know, well built stuff holds its value, and, that, and it, but like, how long is that going to last? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, like, you think about how how great UAD plugins are now. Like, you know, sooner or later, there's going to be like something that's just as good as my my gate step. You know, my stay level that you know, like Retro already built a nice copy of. You know, that that in the digital world, like you're not going to. You know, I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, where you'll see a dumping of of the physical gear on yeah. the market as opposed to, you know, the software because everybody's going to you know be buying software and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where studios are going, like I feel like studios almost aren't going to have computers anymore. Like somebody's going to walk in with like an iPhone-sized computer and be like, "Where's your uh, Where's your converter? Where's your port? Yeah, where's your port?" And then you know, make a record. You know, it's going to be like R two D two. Yeah. <laughs> Coming in and plugging into the system. Yeah. Those radar folks better get on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Joe, on that note, thank you so much yeah, for having coffee with me and, and chatting with me. It's it's uh, it's great to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot of great things about you, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on oh, the show. Oh, thank you so much. So. I, 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 uh, I'll have to pay those guys. Yeah, you got. You better send those people a check. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, just for the audience, do you, do you maintain a website? Uh, I'm actually super bad at this I've always been super bad at self-promotion everything has been word of mouth and I've always been uh, but I'm actually working on a web page right now I'm hoping to launch mid-spring it's, it's going to be gaininvolume.com okay well we'll put a link uh, in the show notes and people can just monitor that for the yeah, future yeah. yeah hopefully something won't happen sooner or later but I've never had one I recently just got business cards like in the last couple of years like I just was so bad it was, you know I would show up and be like hey man take my, take my cell phone number or my email and you know I stayed fairly busy doing that but like I, I gotta get on the self promotion I'm just terrible at it something to work on for the future yeah, yeah. awesome well thank you thank you so much Joe Finocchio here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to, of course, thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and that's Chuck Smith, the magical voice at the beginning of the show. And I want to thank you for listening. Once again, spread the word. Leave us a review on iTunes if you have the chance. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.